what's the best way to describe it, chaos or disenfranchisement in the past 18 years and today's uh, indictment of Paul Manafort has uh, definitely excited my phone lines quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. I know. Wow. Oh God. You know I I look at just from when I started this project just to give you I'm so sorry about that. I you know, I can't seem to turn that off, so please excuse uh you know, the, the bleeps. I turned off my cell phone, so we won't get it there. But, um, uh, you know, I started out of curiosity f from being a photojournalist with the UN just after I returned from Guatemala covering the Civil War. And I had some very egregious experiences in Guatemala where I <clears throat> actually firsthand saw the price the difficult price for freedom of speech during the post-Civil War, uh, kind of the conclusion, the wind down, uh, the transfer of power, etc. And, you know, I saw people taken off of public buses, uh, all kinds of, of things that, of course, we hear. And today we are almost uh, immune to that kind of uh, content. But when I came back, I was fascinated in the 2000 election before the disenfranchised vote of uh, George Bush um, to just look at how we take for granted freedom of speech. So I decided to begin to construct that visually and in doing so um, set out kind of mindlessly to just look at the visual template that traces the work I had been brought up in in the late 60s, early 70s, because I'm an old broad, um, and see how it applied to 2000 in the post-Clinton years. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, uh, of course, the Supreme Court decision. And I began to really look at the value of historically compiling an archival project, which I have now done. I don't know if you've been to my website. I think you have, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I um, have an additional one coming out, and I have a book coming out next year. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Please excuse me. I'm going to turn this off. What a day. And I'm so anxious to talk to you about our issues. So you're moving up the food chain here. But anyway, what I'm getting at, which just in terms of remarking, about politics and how we look at issues, because I think it's somewhat reflective in the world you're in, is, um, you know, we have an opportunity in this country to use our voice, and how it's trans translated is fascinating, if you take it on as a study, which I have. Um, and so because of my book, and because of my forthcoming exhibition in New York next year, um, which will be a wonderful feather in my cap, I was asked to do a podcast. 
So I am launching a podcast, and the reason I bring this up is I've been asked to do this for the animals, but we'll talk about that in our discussion here today. Um, So I have launched a podcast that will premiere on January 20th, uh, 2018, and it's titled One Year Later, America Speaks. So obviously it's a year having endured the nightmare that we are all experiencing, except for those few 33% who are maintaining their support of Trump. Um, And what's fascinating about this podcast, I was very lucky to get Martin Sheen to be my first guest. I have an extraordinary lineup of guests. And I think it's given me an opportunity to really use this sort of new way of communicating to the public. And what I would love, Rob, would be an opportunity, and I'm looking into this uh, because I have a great relationship with the head of LA County, Marsha Maeda, Allison Cordona, Danny Ubario, Steve Fries at Marino Valley, Dorothy, even Brenda Barnett in LA City. And I think it's a value right now because I know you must just, how do you get through each day is a question I ask all of them um, based on what you deal with on a daily basis in your job. Well, it is a lead up. It is a lead up to my first series of questions. So what I want to ask you is, let's get a sense of your background. What, what, how did you get into this line of work? Okay, we'll be, we'll be. Okay. So I just want to give you our time frame for today. We can certainly talk another day, but for today, that's the time that I have. Well, we're going to focus on Huskies and what's going on in terms of questions I have, etc. But yeah, I have to find out because, you know, I have to back up to when you and I first spoke and we'll keep it brief. But, you know, a lot of people, because they knew what I'd do with the UN, somebody like a Lori Wagner would constantly put me on emails with people saying I'm covering this story. And I have formally disengaged with that and with her. And because I think the inflammatory nature of what I see in rescue and what you must deal with every day is very toxic. Well, and I think it ties very much into our discussion about First Amendment rights. Yeah. Because when you talk about uh, previous decades, I, I would say, I would even say post-internet launching, you know, I mean, the 90s weren't, weren't quite the same as 2000s and, and certainly not the 2010s where everybody has the right to free speech. But, but before now, <clears throat> you could choose to listen to it or not. And at least for those of us who or in the government and who are a public servant, it's gotten to a point where we cannot choose to filter, or not, you know, filter or not filter the, the content that's coming into to us personally. I mean, personal, personal attacks from, from the likes of Lori Wagner and others are a daily thing now. Mm. And, and I think uh, it's energized by Facebook, don't you? Well, yeah, I mean, social media in general has, yeah. has created this issue, and, and I think First Amendment um, rights and and the limitations of First Amendment rights are going to be a big issue, something I think that the Supreme Court will actually weigh in at some point. It's just my opinion, but... 
oh yeah, no, 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 we can expect it, especially with this particular administration. And you know, as a member of the press, I, I deal with this all the time, and I've been interviewing some incredibly lofty, uh, big names in New York, and the, this is going to be, um, it's, it's challenging us. And so, you know, I think we have a lot we could get into in future time, but I want to just jump in. So what, what led you to, to um, being a public servant and working in uh, animal control? Well, let me give you a little background first. Um, I started at a very early age in, in this industry, um, I started off in boarding kennels when I was in high school. I worked for a national, uh, probably internationally recognized Pekingese breeder uh, called Ming Tree Kennels out of San Dimas, California. Hmm. And I don't even know if they're still in business. I haven't looked. But so I was, you know, doing the basic husbandry, animal husbandry for these dogs, vaccination, you know, cleaning their cages every day. And I, I fell in love with um, just the reaction that I felt from the dogs when I came to work every morning, you know, five in the morning, these dogs are so happy to see me. You know, I was the only interaction while they were being boarded at these facilities. And um, it was just kind of a, a moving thing in terms of uh, feeling some sort of work, uh, you know, like doing the job. I'd done other jobs like, you know, I was a cook's assistant and a dishwasher. Hmm. And it worked a little bit in... Um, <clears throat> And fast food, you know, I was a teenager, that's what you do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really loved working with animals, and so, and I happened to be an avid Siberian uh, Husky lover, and um, I've had Siberian Huskies my whole life. I don't currently have one, but this is the first time in my life that I have not had a Siberian Husky. Oh, God, please, yeah. please go to Riverside and adopt. <laughs> try to avoid them because uh, I know it's heartbreaking I have a in my house the staff are always like we've got this beautiful red and white in here you got to come and look at it and, oh god yeah yeah uh, uh, so but but from from the sort of gestation of falling in love with you know just what happens to to I think every open-hearted human being and you yourself uh, you know, in terms of your formidable years, and then moving into this world, which um, which is tough, Rob. What you do is tough, and uh, I know this. I've been covering this story now. Well, I was asked by LA Magazine to write a quick blurb on dog rescue, and at the time, my article kind of reflected that it was easier to adopt a child in the 90s than a, than a dog, and uh, we can go into all of that as background in our next conversation, but what I found is when you enter this world, which is really unknown to the public, and that's where I come in, all of that which you deal with, with what rescues deal with, and what the dogs and cats and whatever deal with. Um, so it takes a certain kind of personality. So how did you prepare yourself for management? Well, I, you know, after I left the kennel uh, industry, the kennel business, I, I actually went back to school and became a, a, a licensed nurse, uh, RVP, is what they're currently called. They used to be called AHTs, mm-hmm. Animal Health Technicians. So I worked veterinary medicine for a number of years. And I was working emergency. I was working the overnight shift on weekends. Um, I spent a lot of time at work. I didn't see my family. I had two small kids. And a job popped up for um, an RVP, 
actually in Arizona, we have called CVTs, um, at a local shelter, the Arizona Humane Society, which just happened to be at the time the fourth largest nonprofit animal welfare organization in the country. Wow. So I took the job, and within a year, I was the supervisor over the state intercept. And hmm. another year went by, and suddenly I was the clinic administrator um, over the hospital and all the spay neuter clinics. And so at that time, I realized I needed a real degree. So I went back to school. I got a bachelor's degree in business management. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've got my master's degree in, in business management. But, but that kind of, <clears throat> that rapid ascent is what led me into management. Of course, I was a nonprofit, so, but we were an open-door shelter, and the Arizona Humane Society remains that way uh, today. And so they take in every homeless animal, and, and euthanasia occurs in their shelters. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen with every humane society, as you know. No, uh-uh, no. And I, I, work, I had the pleasure of working for Ken White for many years. Okay. I'm sure you know who Ken is. Yeah. And Ken was, I would say, my mentor. Oh, wow. And I'm still in touch with Ken today, oh. even though he's up with Peninsula Humane. Okay. Um, and he was the biggest influence on my career. And yeah. it was through him that I learned um, really how to be compassionate, but also you know, be able to get through a job, which is managing a population. And, you know, they used to call it herd health management, but, you know, that didn't fly very well with the public when they heard that term. So, no. <laughs> you know, we've, we've had to adapt over time. And, you know, I, I remember very bad days, um, you know, when the industry was really dark in terms of the euthanasia, mm-hmm. when selection criteria was just, you know, you walk by, the dog looks at you funny, you know, you're next. And so I've gone through those periods of time. Um, I've seen the decade changes that have occurred from spay neuter to um, K through 12 education. There's, there's been big key moments and turning points in the industry. Mm-hmm. I'm not a spring chicken myself. Mm-hmm. So when you said you're an old blood, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I don't I mean, you know, I think there are, to me, I, I always look at that and, uh, you know, listening to your background and what you have, you know, really walked the walk with, um, you know, that puts emotional years on us. And sort of that's how I reflect myself. Uh, because, uh, you know, I think we both have chosen uh, well, I mean, I, I think you have chosen an industry that must really take its toll a little bit on you. And that is one of my last questions. And so I want to just get a sense from you. Okay, where are you at with the Hayden Law? And you know, I've done a lot of interviewing in this past year for two particular issues. One is I am working with um, a broadcast journalist in CBS to do a larger form documentary content based on some of our more affluent states and how we are dealing from, I guess, well, this started uh, from the economic demise and all the foreclosures and the huge increase uh, of companion pets in our shelters. So that said, um, I started looking into this by really developing my relationships with, you know, all of those that I've gotten to know well in LA County, and there's a great crop there. Also, Steve Fries and Marino, etc, etc. So 
what I have heard is where they are thinking related to this Hayden law, but what what are your thoughts related to that? Well, I, I mean, I think that the Hayden law was drafted at a time when things were much different. And, okay. and I also think that the legislators at the time, and, I, you know, I've talked to Tammy about this quite a bit. Right, you know, right. Yeah, I know her. You know, yeah. The legislation's mindset at the time was that they didn't trust the leaders of animal control. Huh. They trusted all of the rescues. <clears throat> they trusted the heads of humane societies. But the heads of animal controls were really viewed as the enemy. Mm. And and I think that's changed quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. There's still a lot of divisiveness amongst the heads of animal control. You know, mm. I have a good relationship with Steve. I've known Marsha for you know a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Inland Empire and probably L.A. County have a really good relationship, but we have zero relationship with Brenda Barnett. Yeah, yeah, she's she's very challenging. Yeah, I, I have a very contentious relationship. I'm sorry to say, not contentious, but questioning with uh, San Bernardino, not, not Oscar. I've spent a lot of time related to San Bernardino City, but I just don't always understand how Devorah operates. But well, let's put that aside because, you know, maybe off the record one day I can have you explain that shelter to me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm not, and you know, Linda Blair and I have talked about them for a long time. I, I just don't, you know, I don't know. But yeah. you know, what, what I would like to evaluate, and you know, I've wanted to get this from you, and then I'm looking at time. It's 1.18. I want to jump right to Huskies. And then I do have to admit to you that because I have interviewed so many Husky rescues, Rob, for this piece, um, I have gotten a barrage of questions for you and some issues that people want me to bring up. And it would be fascinating with not so much on the record, but let's just put it this way that we could reflect uh uh, some some of the things I see that are hindering saving more huskies and see what you think and see if there's any way I can put into print that uh, incredible efforts are being made, you know, on various levels to make sure that this and this and this is covered. So um, let me back up and start with one of the things that I am curious about in relationship to what I know about the Hayden Law is, um, and you know, this is something, unfortunately, I got from a crazy person like Lori, and I'm not, this is not like being taped for any record, so this is between you and me, but Mm -hmm. she schools with this notion of, um, you know, rescue partners and blah, blah, blah. Um, I have actually seen both sides of that issue, and particularly in this breed, I know how important it is because you and I I, I come at this this topic biased. I have a, a 12-year-old Malamute, you know, um, and you are a husky person. It's a bad breed in, in, your, in the shelters and in your shelter. It's just hard because they don't confine well, right? And well, I would say that's true in the uh, home environment as well, wouldn't you? I yeah, mean, I think it's problematic. Huskies, I mean, Siberian huskies are one of the most likely... A, to get out, and if they get out of the yard, uh, B, to continue running until they run out of wind. <laughs> yeah, and then they get confronted when they're scared and they bite, and then they end up in court. You know, it's just a spiraling nightmare. Um, so let me just make sure. 
It, it is, and, and I, I just want to get a sense from you, and because you, you care so much about them, I think you're the right person to talk to. So for the Hayden Law, okay, the law says that any 501c3 can save a dog. How does that work at Riverside? Is that still a fact, or is there other yeah. situations you try to put into play so you have more protection or control over uh, where the dog goes? I would say um, that the majority, I mean, we're talking, you know, greater than 99 percentile of dogs that are in our facilities are completely open to any nonprofit taking them. Now, I have to put a little caveat on that because when I came from Arizona, I spent a decade working in, in this industry in Arizona, and rescues didn't take adoptable dogs from animal shelters in Arizona. Mm. <laughs> in fact, the rescue world in Arizona, they had a, an association called Cabra, and they policed their own, and there was actually a set of standards that you had to abide by. 